1783, America and England agreed that the United States would no longer be under the British monarch. But yet when something happens like Queen Elizabeth's death, you see many people in America that are just fascinated with it. Why is that? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Seitz. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. Recently, when the Queen of England died, we saw a phenomenon that seems to happen every time that there's a, a royal wedding or there's a new prince that's born, that we get everybody in America almost seems to be more interested in it, even than the English are. So why is that we're so fascinated with the British monarchy? I think there's a couple of reasons. I mean, some of it can be because we came, you know, we have this connection with England and because we came from England. But I do think there's a deeper sense of it. And there's a part of it where royalty is tied to an aspect of idolatry in human nature. There's a part of it where God created kings to reflect his glory. And there's a part, you know, and you can even look in, in the history of Israel. Israel wanted a king. And God says, you shouldn't want a king. And obviously in God's providence, Israel was going to have a king. And he was going, you know, in his decree, there was going to be kings of Israel. There was going to be David. There was going to be Solomon. And he was going to glorify himself through them. But at the same time, there was a part of it where he was telling them, when you have this king, your heart's going to be drawn away to them. You're, they're going to they're gonna be in this position that you're going to struggle with. And and this is something that Scripture, you know, we'll, we'll talk about different aspects of this throughout the episode. But man's heart longs for an idol. We long to worship things. And a king is this figure that we use the languages crafted for it, everything about statecraft. It's, it's all designed to lift this person up and let them be this thing that we can look at and we can glorify in a way we really shouldn't glorify another a, a human. We talk about this a lot on this podcast, but idolatry is something that I think it's so easy for us to think that it's an old-fashioned thing, that idolatry is something that doesn't still exist today, but idolatry is alive and well. It's all over the place, and I think it's one of those things we need to remind ourselves what it is and the shapes it takes. And I think people see it when they look outside this country. Right. They look at, at, you know, President Putin of Russia, who how long has he ruled for? 35 years or something where he just goes between being the prime minister and the president, whichever position he has, he has all the authority. And right. and there's a lot of people in Russia that really like him. And they like the idea of having that strong man. They like that idea of having that that figurehead that represents their country, because then they don't they don't need to be that. They can just look to him and go. Yeah, this is us. And so it, it, you know, having a strong leader like that, which is different than the English monarchy. Right. But, but it is still that same desire you see that, you know, everybody thought when Saddam Hussein, right, when George W. Bush said that we should invade, you know, Iraq because Saddam Hussein, everybody in, in Iraq hated Saddam Hussein. It's just not true. People actually like that idea of the strong man that's bullying all the other nations. They like that. And I think, it, and it's, and like I said, a king sort of transcends that in some way, like you're saying. I mean, there's a part of it where, you know, so, because in the United States, we have elected leaders, and there's a part of it where God says, you should show honor to these people because they're appointed by me. But we don't want to show them honor because they're appointed by God. We want to show them honor for other reasons. 
and and a king is just per, a king and a queen is just perfectly suited to take and suck up honor and glory. They they're designed to be placed on a pedestal. They, I mean everything. I mean literally, they they they'll sit on a raised at least a raised throne. <laughs> right. I mean right. There everything about it is to raise them up and let you look at them and let them be something that you would go. I should show honor to that. And and so I mean there is just this part of it where the the identity of it it jars itself with why God I mean in in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar Daniel was a slave and there were kings who had to come and listen to Daniel you know what I mean? I mean, because he worked for Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel was a slave, and Daniel really never ceased to be a slave throughout all the— I mean, he was made a prince, but he also knew he was still a slave. His his glory and his honor was that he was appointed. And we understand these ideas, but we want to glorify the thing that seems glorious, not the role that was appointed to be glorious, and not to give it glory because God said it's glorious. And I think that's that's really one of the issues with idolatry is, is we want to worship something— and so we want to craft the thing that we get to worship. And I think, you know, this really comes pretty early in Scripture, right? It's, it starts in Genesis 10, where you had Nimrod that, that basically becomes the ruler of all the earth, right? Genesis 10, 8 through 10. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. In the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kelneh in the land of Shinar. And what he ends up doing, right, is he leads the people to build the Tower of Babel. And what was at the Tower of Babel? It was a throne room that, where the heavens were depicted on it because man was going to sit in heaven and rule like God. And so the whole point was, like you said, that God does put a king in place that is supposed to bring glory and honor to the king of kings. But they want to replace the king of kings in, a, in people who are rejecting Christ and rejecting the idea that God is the one that appointed them. They want the king to be the king of kings rather than say that he's exalted because he's sharing the glory of a greater one. And that's exactly what the Tower of Babel was all about, was that idolatry of having we're all together. Look, we can do this and we can sit in the heaven. And in the end, it would have been one man that was leading them that would have sat in the heavens. But, you know, traditionally in the English monarch, in all the monarchies, you know, in Europe and probably worldwide, uh, but traditionally the reason that you were supposed to honor the king is because he had a divine right to rule. So isn't that, aren't they saying we're honoring him because we're honoring God? Right, but even when they did that, the, the whole theory of the divine right of kings was that he didn't have to really answer to the king of kings or he was the only one that you answered to. And so whatever he decreed was the, was the divine decree. I mean, it's very it much like the, the Pope now, right? That the Pope says that whatever he says is the final decree on that matter, and it is the infallible decree. And that's kind of the same thing that, you know, you look at everybody that believed in the divine right of kings, that's what they were saying, that they didn't have to submit to the king of kings, that the words from their mouth were a substitute for what Jesus Christ would say. Well, may, I mean, maybe the second part, but the, I thought the idea is that God appointed them as king, and that, so they only had to answer to God. So they still did have to answer to God, but not to any man. Right, but where they add it to and where they care about it is that that means that whatever they say, everybody has to obey it as if it's from God, which meant that they've basically eliminated God from that scenario. And that's where the conflict gets. 
And I think part of that is related to the prophecy in Daniel and, and with Nebuchadnezzar. And, and remembering that Nebuchadnezzar, his title was King of King and Lord of Lords. And so Nebuchadnezzar was a type of Jesus Christ on earth. And so in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar has had a vision. He doesn't know what it is. He's killing, the, he's killing his own wise men. Daniel prays. Daniel says, stop killing the wise men. He prays, ask God to tell him. And then Daniel comes in and he tells Nebuchadnezzar the vision that he saw. So you, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This, image, this image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And so part of what Daniel, when he tells the the interpretation of this, is this image is Nebuchadnezzar is this head of gold. And so there's this part of it where Nebuchadnezzar was in some ways the peak of man's idolatry of man. I mean, when you look at what God said, whatever came into Nebuchadnezzar's heart, he was able to do. No ruler on the face of the earth has had such freedom. Even, you know, the greatest kings of earth, the greatest, most powerful dictators, they have other people who are checks on them, who are part of their power structure that they have to please. And so there's this part of it when you get down to the British monarchy. By the time you get to the British monarchy, some of this has already been fulfilled. I mean, God has crushed that this. That when Jesus Christ comes, when Jesus Christ ascends, when He goes into heaven and His kingdom is coming, this image of man, this image that is shaped like a man, has already been crushed to some extent. So that Nebuchadnezzar could build this idol of himself on earth, and Nebuchadnezzar continued to rule. Nebuchadnezzar could send and have kings from all over the earth come and bow before him, and he could do these things, and he could have all this. But the British monarchy, by the time you get there. He still has the answer to God in some ways. He's, you know, there's Lex Rex and, you know, Rex Lex, and you have these, you know, this, this fight over the king. But everybody understood that even though we wanted to worship the king, the ability to do it has been constrained. And so, and, and like I said, when we, when we look at our own leaders, there's a part of it where people want to worship government. But God's constrained it to the point where we still understand that they're just men. And, and so there is this part of it where the prophecy that Daniel saw is being fulfilled in the world, and the greatness of kings has been, has been drawn down, even though we still want to worship them, and we still do worship them. And just like in so many things in Scripture, right, they go out and they kill all those animals as sacrifices, because it was a shadow, and when the substance comes, the shadow passes away. Right. And you look at, the, at uh, David. God was already their king. They wanted a different king, as it says in First Samuel, Samuel 8, 4 through 7. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that you, they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. So... Samuel comes because of his sons, right? The people don't like him. And so because 
they're unlikable, right? I mean, they're they're cruel to the people, and he's afraid that they'll or the people are afraid that they'll become the natural rulers after Samuel, and so the people say we want a king, and Samuel says they're rejecting me, and he said, and God says no, they're rejecting me. Then God sets up Saul, and then obviously Saul rejects God. He does sacrifices when he's not supposed to. He acts like the kingdom was given to him and that he sat in that place where he could do whatever he wanted, including doing burnt offerings. And so then God takes it away from him and he gives it to David. And David, you know, since Christ is the son of David, David is a picture of God, right? He's a type of God. And then Solomon, the son of David, is a type of Christ. But when you look at that, that type where you do have that level of authority and that you do have that level of power and that you do, it was all supposed to be a picture of you don't want God to reign over us. But then once Christ comes, we have Christ, so we don't need the picture of what a king should look like because we have a real king. So with that, the shadow is going to fade because the the British monarch is a shadow of you know, Jesus Christ. And as those, as Christ is here, why wouldn't we expect in all the kingdoms? And yeah, it took 2,000 years. There was a long time that kings were very powerful. But now you look, and most kings are, are figureheads or nominal figureheads at least. But we've also had some people that aren't kings that had a lot more power than, than most kings ever had. You know, Hitler, Stalin, I mean, they had a lot of power. Um, you know, I mean, there's a whole list of them that had a lot of power. I don't know that they had more power than most kings had. Well, I mean, it's well... You know the amount of territory they were ruling over. Oh, sure, you know, for sure. And, and then even I mean, and a lot of kings were extremely weak. You know, even the Holy Roman Emperor was—he's he's not even a king; he's an emperor, but he was very weak. And let's be really clear: when you go back to Nebuchadnezzar and you go forward, even to the Roman Empire, to where the Roman Empire begins to wane, people were looking at the kings as if they were men who were gods. Right. You know, what I mean, I mean, and they were treated as gods effectively. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was clearly—I mean. You don't you don't hear the same necessarily the same language, but you see obviously the same level of veneration. You see the same level of I mean, he calls everyone in and they're going to bow down and worship him. I mean, and so I mean, this was the picture. Whereas by the time you get to, you know, like you're talking about the Post-Roman Holy Roman Emperor, Emperor and some of these things, no one was claiming to be gods anymore. No one was recognizing them as gods, or if they were, it was it was it was. Well, that's everyone. more as the gospel goes forward, right. because you look at the the Japanese emperor and they thought he was God. Right. Because the gospel really hadn't gone right. there. But where the gospel went and people saw the antitype, there was no longer that that push for the type. Right. And I think and I do really think that's important is if you don't if you look at history as being caused by man, it doesn't make sense. But if you look at history as being caused by these heavenly things, by these things that God is doing, it actually makes like you're saying in the sense of Jesus Christ actually coming it changed things, and it changed things so that men men begin to see it and they can understand it. Because before, God wanted there to be kings in a different way. God had a desire for there to be kings so that there was this thing pointing forward. And now God doesn't want that. God doesn't want it in the same way, so the world changes. So, I mean, you know, bringing it back to our, our question, why are we so fascinated with the British royalty? Are we basically saying it's because... Hey, royalty is a picture of God, but it's the sort of picture that instead of saying, oh, this thing points to God, we like to use it as a substitute. Right. And that, I mean, that's I think that's a main, Yeah, I think that's a main, main point of what happens. Yes. And I think it's interesting to me that, you know, the founders of this country saw that. 
And so they put in the Constitution in Article 1, Section 9, Clause 8, no title of nobility shall be granted by the United States. No person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of the Congress, except of any present emolument, office, or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. I mean, they saw the danger of giving people titles because they saw that people then start to think that they have this veneration towards them. When you look at nobility, I mean, there's this part of it we don't even understand how that word, what that used to mean. I mean, in, in the Shakespeare's play, Henry V, there was a part where he's where he's going to, you know, they're going to go to the Battle of Ashencourt, and he's, it's on St. Crispin's Day, and he's talking about they have a few number of men, and there's a speech that he's giving, and he says, he who rides with me, it will gentle his condition. And the phrase to gentle his condition, it's tied to nobility. It, if you were noble, you were made of better stuff. I mean, you, I mean, you were literally just better than other people. And he was saying, if you ride with me, it will make you noble. It will make you so that it will, it will, it, it's a form of glorif of earthly glorification where you were going to be better than other people. And so, I mean, and this, and this is what was being rejected. And we, we talk a lot about showing partiality. In the end, a title of nobility is built-in partiality. It is a requirement. You cannot be noble and not be treated differently. And you look at it, and I mean, the nobility, like even the British monarchy, because I know more about that than a lot of other, you know, noble lines, if you will. But you, and a lot of them were like really unbelievably vile people. Like there was one king who would give a brooch to all the married women that he slept with so that everybody in the court would know which ones he committed adultery with. And they would all brag about wearing the brooch. Right. And it was an honor to the man that his wife had slept with the king. Right. Or you have you have James I, who was a sodomite. I mean, you have – it's and so they – the title gives us this impression of being more noble so that you don't judge the people anymore, but these people are far from noble in many cases. And, and we should be really clear, that's one of the thing that is, things that's going on with the veneration of the queen is there are people who are looking at her and going – I'm not going to judge her like I would another person who has done the things that she has done or who has done the thing. You know, I mean, who is who is I mean, Ravi Zacharias, there were people who had a hard time with that. But there are a lot of people who would go, no, we should judge him by what he's done. But her covering up, you know, whether she's covering up her sons, you know, the pedophilia associated with her, whether she's covering up these, you know. No, that, that's, you know, they're not going to judge her according to that. And that is the point of nobility. That is the point of this. And it, that is the aspect of idolatry that we're talking about, is you want to say, no, I don't have to judge them by the standard that I judge someone else. So, so the, the idolatry is putting that person in the, the role of a substitute god. But then the consequence of that is, well, if they're, if they're God, you treat them differently. Right. Which is, you know, that's how the partiality exactly. comes Exactly. And what the Bible says is to whom much is given, much is expected, meaning that the judgment for the Queen of England, who inherited, what, $17 billion or something, I mean, she actually has higher standards, but because of the nobility, what we do is we drop the standards. And that's not what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to drop the standards. You're not supposed to drop the standards for an elder. You're, not, you're supposed to rebuke them in front of everybody. Well, somebody else for the same sin may not get rebuked in front of everybody. The, the whole idea of how God does it is since he is the king of kings and he is perfect and sinless, 
he can be judged with a perfect standard because the most has been given to him. And yes, we need to show grace to other people, but you don't show somebody more grace because they're wealthier. Right. And, and, you know, to be fair to, you know, well, let's just say the English for the last hundreds of years, you know, one of the things about being a monarch usually is that while in some areas your sin could be unconstrained, in other areas you were disciplined. So, you know, James the first, even though he's a wicked guy, you know, he has certain standards uh, that he lives by and certain a certain bearing that he lives by so that people, you know, in the back country of England don't know this. I mean, if you're a lord of the bedchamber, you know who the king really is, but he's able to maintain this persona that, you know, people people don't just didn't realize it as much as, you know, the people who actually knew him knew what he was really like. So and, you know, that's something that, you know, I, I think is kind of inculcated into the the people as part of the royal family is their bearing to the public is extremely important. You know, maybe what their actually moral standards are aren't as important, but you need to have a, um, you know, you need to present a good front to the to the world. I mean, as we talk about it, though, we should also recognize that that you know God established kings and that there is a blessing there too. They can be turned become idolatrous. But even some of the blessing, like Joshua was talking about before, where they're more constrained, they're more constrained in their behavior. And, you know, I just wanted to pop up a few pictures because, you know, here's a picture of the Queen of England. And if you look at her, she's always dressed in a certain way. She's always dressed with a certain elegance, with a certain style, with a certain not vulgarity. Probably should have started with, you know, one of the old kings with like a suit of golden armor. It's a little more impressive than the Queen of England. But my but point <laughs> is, is that she's orderly and she's neat and she's giving stability to a society. But then you look at like the, the Pennsylvania Senate candidate. And I mean, he, you know, I think one commentator was saying, doesn't he look like a mass murderer? I mean, you could find people on death row that look like him. And there's no sense or of... Or a pastor. Or, yes, or a youth <laughs> pastor, not a regular pastor. Charles. I was thinking Driscoll, but yeah. <laughs> yeah anyway, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But, but you look, and because we don't have that standard, you can see how quickly it can, it can depart. And so even though you look at the king, there is a sense that the king is salt and light. There is a sense that that monarchy, not necessarily a king, but a queen in this case, but it does say there is a standard for the kingdom and they maintain the standard. Well, we don't have anybody that's maintaining the standard. So somebody comes in and Jimmy Carter says all of a sudden, everybody should wear sweaters because that looks nice and down homey. You know? and, and this changed the culture with Jimmy Carter. The three of you don't remember that. I thought you were looking down to see if you were wearing a sweater. Wait a minute. And I'm not saying it's wrong to wear a sweater. I'm saying, but the decorum of the Oval Office changed, and that changed the decorum that everybody said was acceptable throughout the country. Well, the Queen was dressing in a way that suggested a society and a culture and a civilization that would flow from that, and and she was trying to uphold that to some degree, even if it was even if you could say for the worst. I mean, I'm not even suggesting it was for the worst reasons, but even if it was just for her own honor, there was a part of it where having a culture that was ordered in a way was a good thing, and she caused that to happen. And like you're saying here in the U.S., we've we've lost that idea. Like here's the the chair of the. House Appropriations Committee. I mean, and she changes the color of her hair all the time, like the front of it. Like you can find her in pink and blue and purple and green, and she changes it. And I mean, this is like the fourth most, fifth most powerful person in the country. And 
you know, I remember when I went over to England in the early 80s, and you go into subways, and there were lots of people that looked like that. But you go into government, and there wasn't anybody, and that was maintained for a long time after that because this kind of fashion came to the United States well after it was popular in England, the punk fashions and all that stuff. Right. But yet, in our country, these things are acceptable, and in England, they're far less acceptable. And I do think it's because there's a sense that the monarchy acts as salt to say, here's what, here's what the standard should be. This is what the standard is of England. There's a unifying force, in a sense, as well, from the king or the queen. I mean, there's this part of it where there's this – people talk about a figurehead. I mean, and, and while the power of the queen has been greatly reduced over the years in the sense of where the, that her authority has been ceded to her ministers and to the representatives, she still is that figurehead in the sense who still brings this unifying sense. that Because she's – even though she doesn't has necessarily have the authority to dissolve government in the same way she used to – she is still a representation of that government and exists above it and transcends it. And so it's something that people can look, even if they're very frustrated with their prime minister, they can look at the queen and go, there is still this ideal that I'm holding to, and, and that's a very useful thing. And the queen was incredibly careful to make sure that she didn't get into politics. So both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, the two major parties, the Green Party, I guess, is another major party in England, that all these could look towards her and say, we're all unified that she's our queen. They can't look towards the prime minister that way, right? There's the prime minister and there's the opposition parties. I mean, they're, they're very clear there. They even set up shadow governments so that they say this is what they should be doing. But they still have this overriding unity that's in the queen. And the way that the queen was able to do that is by saying, I will never mention politics. And she almost never said anything political at all. And you now, know, it'll be interesting to see if Charles continues the same just because he was far more political to begin with. Right. And, but, you know, if you look at, you know, the his, historical meaning of the monarchy, um, where it's someone that actually does have power. And, you know, we're, we're from the American tradition of republicanism, small, small r. You know, we – America is anti-monarchy. Um, and I think, you know, the reason for that goes back to biblical principles of government, of constraint, of, of a total depravity. If we don't want one person in charge of everything because then their sin is going to, you know, run rampant. And, you know, the, the power will – one person should not have all the power. They should have checks and balances. But at the same time, it, it could be easy for people in America and most countries in the world nowadays to forget um, that God has used many godly kings in the past. Um, and there's probably many times where um, it would have been wrong for a godly king to say, I'm going to set up a democratic government or I'm going to set mm -hmm. up a republican government. Because, uh, you know, I think it was John Adams that said, um, one, one, of the, one, of the, one of the founding fathers said that, you know, the Constitution was written for moral people and cannot be used for any other. And so if you don't have a moral people and you're a godly king, it, it probably is not right for you to say, I'm going to relinquish this God-given power and give it to the people who are going to destroy themselves. You know, you have examples in Scripture, you know, Josiah, Hezekiah, people who are, you know, godly, and they're ruling as king. And you see Cromwell, right? Cromwell says he wants to set up a representative republic, but yet once he starts to see who the representatives are and the way the representatives are acting to just basically abolish representation of certain parts to shift where the party is, he goes... Basically, you need to become a monarch, and he becomes a monarch again. I mean, in, not in name, but in everything else except for title. And so, yeah, it takes a real 
different people to to be able to deal with somebody that where you don't have that monarch that has the power because people it's easier to bow down to somebody right it's it's easy to criticize cromwell but it you know when cromwell became lord protector through the restoration of the monarchy i mean basically everybody at some point was saying we need a king and you look at and like you were saying about a good king, right? Cromwell, I mean, in Ireland, where Ireland despises Cromwell, I mean, they had the the rap, most rapid-growing economy in their history while Cromwell was ruler over them. And so even though they despise him because of that he brought peace there, well, he brought peace there and had some real benefits. Right. Well, I, you know, th- he brought peace there isn't exactly how they would phrase it. But. Certainly not how they would phrase it, but it's, but, I mean, but it's true. <laughs> it's the problem that... And part of it was, is in the end, he brought order by being a, a, acting as a king without having the glory and idolatry of a king. You know what I mean? There was a part of it where, you know what I mean? Is he 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 deglorified the kingship and yet still ruled with this authority, and that grates on people, because in the end, what I mean, and you look at everything that so much that kings do, that it was everything was designed to give. To, to lure people in with glory and with honor. Like you give them titles and you give them these right. things. And so, I mean, it's, it's again, it's just, it's, a, it's the nature of idolatry that we, that man keeps getting lured into. You see the, the vestiges of this, but it, it has really significance to it, is that, you know, kings bring a different order that's a, a level of order that they can bring to the whole society that doesn't happen in a place like the United States. Because... They really have the ability to have a unity and an order. And you see that with the the debate about, you know, is Prince Harry allowed to wear his uniform? I mean, they have so many rules because they're bringing order to a disorderly society. And, you know, that, that really helps the society by bringing order to it, even if it's only on occasion. It still helps to go order matters and even to have all the press debating about whether he should be allowed to wear his uniform or not. I mean... The fact that people are saying rules matter when we're living in a culture where everybody since the 60s has been saying rules don't matter, including the church. And so, I mean, it is a real, I mean, it helps the culture to say order matters. But how much does it help the culture to say that meaningless rules matter? Well, part of it might just be, I don't don't know that I can answer that question, but it can help explain our fascination with something like that, where we say, you know, where we recognize disorder, cultural disorder, you know, disorder fashion, and then we can look and say, oh, look at this. Look at all of the the pomp and circumstance associated with that. At a minimum, isn't that interesting? Or even say, hey, there's something a little bit attractive about that. Right. And I mean, I would just go to First Kings 10, kind of in answer to your question which is about the Queen of Sheba. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue with camels that bore spices, very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So Solomon answered all her questions, and there was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. And when the Queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers and his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. I mean, part of the testimony of the greatness of Solomon was the level of order, including how they dressed, right? The service of his waiters and their apparel. And so I it does have an effect. 
it is a picture of God. It is a picture of what Christ is like. It is a picture of that God is a God of order and not a God of confusion. So it's easy for us to hear those things and go, those things don't really matter. But yet, in the end, it did matter how Solomon's servants wore their clothes. And just to testify that order matters does matter. I just think about going to Nigeria where uh, they are very concerned about order in certain ways and who talks to who and who has what title and what committee and subcommittee and yada, 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 all, you know, so much order, except then the society is in complete disorder. So it's not, it's not doing it for them. Right. And I think that, that if you look towards the royalty and look towards, towards, I mean, that's where Nigeria got it all was from England was this idea of that there should be this order. And if you take that, and you don't use it as salt to maintain order in a society, I don't think you can take that being the only order and produce an ordered society from it. But I do think that it works to, const- to constrain the breakdown of order that's that's been happening, like in the United States. I don't think you can use it to establish order, though. And I do think this is an indictment of the church, because there's this part of it where when in Daniel's vision, he has this, this kingdom comes and it, and it crushes, and it's the kingdom of Christ that's coming. It's the kingdom of God that's coming, and it crushes these, all these other kingdoms and replaces them. And so there's this part of it where the order that is coming, that now is coming in the world, is coming from Christ, who is the head of this kingdom. And the church is the body of Christ. It talks about that the increase of his government, shall, there, shall be no, you know, there shall be no end to that. There shall be no end to its increase. So there's this part of it where, like, one of the things the church is struggling with today is we keep looking back at the Reformation, but the church is supposed to be continuing to add order to the world. The church is supposed to be continuing to grow and continuing to be establishing new things. We are to be advancing and in, you know, coming out and saying, here are things that Scripture says that will add to the order of the world. And so there's this part of it where what's happened is the reason there has been this kind of hiccup in a sense is because for a period of time the church has wanted to say, we just kind of want to play and keep doing, enjoying the benefits of what has been done before instead of being continuing to bring this order into the world. And so that creates extra room for idolatry. That creates extra room for these for these other things for men to look to. And that even causes a place where, you know, we've talked before about the reason that we have such a huge government is because we have an unruly people. Right. If you have an unruly people, you have to add more laws. The laws right. were given because of transgression. You just grow your government. You grow your laws. You grow everything. And there's a sense that this is true in England, too, is one of the reasons that they maintain the monarchy is people still have a sense that they want that order, even as they're rebelling against that order in so many other ways. And so God in his grace has put it there because the church isn't putting it there like it should. I was talking to my mother earlier this week, and she's just, you know, thrilled with uh, all the pomp and circumstances and all the carrying around the casket and all the, you know, going into places and, you know, there is just people like to see a spectacle. Right. And so there's part of the, you know, part of the reason that so many people really hang on to it and want to watch it is that, that they do enjoy a spectacle and they do enjoy just that idea. And there's a reason why that spectacle makes more sense even with a monarch, because with a monarch, at least it's pointing towards, I mean, it will be, you know, Christ, when he approached his father, he probably did not come alone because there was a whole bunch of people that were resurrected from the graves. And so when he ascends, he probably has an entourage that's going with him. You know, because it's like it says in Psalm 68, 24 and 25, they have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my king into the sanctuary. 
the singers went before, the players on instruments after, among them were the maidens playing timbrels. I mean, there is this idea that that's what God as king looks like. He doesn't just come alone. He comes with pomp and circumstances. He comes with this, you know, this, right. this spectacle. And so people like the spectacle because it is something that, that even as they deny it, it reminds them of who God is. If, kings, if King Solomon's court could take away the spirit of the Queen of Sheba, how much greater will, God's, will, the, will the retinue of Christ be, right? I mean, it will, it will take away the breath of the entire world. I mean, and so there's, right, is, there is pomp and circumstance in that. I mean, it, is. it sounds just like Ecclesiastes. It's like he said eternity in their hearts. I mean, there, there is a natural and a good desire for these kinds of things because that's the direction that that the entirety of all history is moving. But the problem is, is when you look at that and you think that that's it, you you think that the earthly things are the end, and that's all you've got. And and you know that's when we're back into okay, well this is idolatry now. Yeah, if we're on the topic of pomp, you know, God had put in a good word for the American tradition of not quite so much pomp because you know when the country was founded a lot of people come you know the puritans coming here and they very they're very much against the pomp uh that was associated with uh the monarchy with the church of england and so you know they're doing things that you know, would be con- considered by probably everyone today extreme like you can't wear lace on your clothes you know we're they're completely rejecting that and you get to the american war for independence the establishment of the united states and you know, there's some competing stuff, you know, like George Washington, when he comes in, everyone, even since he had been a general, would call him your excellency. And then Thomas Jefferson comes in and says, no, we're not doing that because we're just citizens that are serving in this role. And we're going to go back to being citizens. We're not special people. We're not exalted. We're not, you know, the representative of God on earth in a divine right of kings type way. And so, you know, we, we have an opposing tradition. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for it as well. And it's, you know. When you look at it's it's the same kind of picture, right? That if you don't have the gospel, then what you should do is have the ceremonies and the rites like the Roman Catholic Church does or the Anglican Church does, so that you substitute the right order with some order. Because there's the righteous order that is what the gospel produces. It produces a righteous order. But there's imitations that come out that even the imitations, even though they're idolatrous, even though they have problems, they still have a constraint on certain kinds of sin. And so you have, you know, there's people who, I mean, most people that go to the Roman Catholic Church, they go there because of the pomp. They go there because of the incense that's burned before the guy walks down and the way that they hold the chalice up and all this. Other. I mean, it's all this ceremony and all this rite because, and that produces some order, but it's not the righteous order. The righteous order is because of obedience to the Word of God. And there's a place where that the ceremony um, and the, you know, outfits and everything is a replacement for actual leadership. Like, you know, like I've been listening to a biography of Stonewall Jackson, and he was famous for wearing, you know, the worst clothes. He wore like a decade, the uniform, as he's a Civil War Confederate general, he's wearing like an old U.S. Army uniform from the Mexican War. He's like the rattiest guy in the Army. Um, And then you have all these, you know, new political generals, and they have the fanciest stuff. Well, everybody knew that Jackson was a great general, and the fact that he was not wearing this stuff didn't mean that he wasn't, you know, a revered leader. And Jackson, to use that example, he got the things ordered correctly that needed to be ordered correct. What the Roman Catholic Church does, what the Anglican Church does, is they put order as 
they focus so much order on the wrong things that they lose the order and the important things. But I don't know that the church in America in general is much better. We've lost the order in the in those things, and we've lost the order in the other things, right? We have people that have motorcycles that jump over the pastor while he's preaching. Well, that's as far from the pomp and circumstances that you can get, but at the same time, there's no call to say people should obey Christ. And that's where the order needs to be, and that's the only shift that solves the problem. I mean, the charitable reading of what's happening in a, in the mind of that Catholic parishioner is they're, they're going there because they say it's either this order or it's chaos because they're blind to the truth of the gospel. Right. But what but what you see when you see some young evangelical punk who decides that he wants to be, swim the Tiber and go and become Catholic is often that attraction to, hey, I've got, there's no order here in the evangelical church, so I'm going to go somewhere where I see order, where I see structure, where, right. you know, it's all wrong, but... I mean, there's a sense where the only thing that really fights against idolatry in your heart is having something greater than the idols. I mean, you know what I mean? And this, it's the sort of thing where I, the reason why a Christian can not be a Republican or a Democrat is because if he has Christ... If he if his eyes are actually fixed on Christ, if his eyes are actually fixed on God, he can be the church can be above those things. Christianity is above those things. And for a period of time in the United States, I mean, we had the law of God. We, the Ten Commandments were understood to be the basis of a lot of our law. And there's this part of it where, when those things shift, all of a sudden you become you become open to idolatry. You have to have something that that transcends those things or else you're subject to them, because man is beneath idols. I mean, man by his nature is beneath, you know, I mean, his fallen nature, he's beneath idols. And so there's this part of it where, I mean, the only thing that can keep him from falling and, and worshiping these idols is is actual work, you know, is, is, is Jesus Christ, is actual truth that he can actually look at and that can lift him out of that and keep him from falling into worshiping idols. And I mean, the reality is, right, is if you don't have the antitype, you're going to f- try to find a type. Right. Right. And like you said, Jonathan, that if you don't know who God is, and you, but you still have a sense that Satan is obviously the author of confusion, it's not God, then you look for something that's a picture of that, even if it's not the real thing, because you can't find the real thing. So they look and they find the picture in the Roman Catholic Church or the Anglican Church or the monarchy, but they look for that someplace else because they can't see the real one. And it's not just the Catholic Church. I mean, it could be a reason why some kid decides to join a gang or why somebody decides— Or the military. The military. I mean, you you want to think about pomp and circumstance. Just think about the ceremony at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. I mean, that's as as pompous as we get in America. And, it, it, and you know, so it's like our fascination with the queen is, is no different than somebody saying, I want to join a gang where there's order. And the reality is, is that— it used to be people would join the church because there was order in the church. And that doesn't save, but that's a lot better constraint on their sin than the monarchy. It's a lot better constraint on their sin than the Roman Catholic Church. But a real church should be a church that promotes order, right. order in life, not just order in the pomp, but order in how you live out your life. You, you mean more than just the order of the Sunday morning service. Yes. You mean you mean a sense of decorum, a, a shared culture. A I mean that you have a schedule in your home that you read the Bible, that you have that there's a pattern to life, and that things are orderly because things that are orderly are more efficient, more effective. And so that's what the the expectation should be for Christians that they have a more orderly life than non Christians. 
you can basically read the part about the King of Solomon from the attire of their servants to the way they go up to worship to the I mean, it's those exact same things. And I mean, it, it is important when you think about it because you know we've been studying through Exodus, you know, as a church. But in studying through Exodus, there are you know, there are a lot of of pomp there, right? There's certain ways that they're supposed to do the sacrifices. There's ways they're supposed to put the showbread. There's ways that they're supposed to light the lampstand. There's in in you know in Hebrews eight five it says, "Who served the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle." For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. In other words, this is about heavenly things. This is about the, the, and so in heaven, there will be that kind of order. There will be that kind of, you know, this is the systematic way that you go about things. And we want to think that it's just going to be all, you know, let's just sit around and eat grapes and play harps and sing with the angels. But that's, that's not the picture that God has given us of what heaven looks like. You know, one thing about the queen's death being such a big event is she's also an incredibly wealthy person, and we love rich people. Not not us personally, <laughs> of course, but the people at large. I mean, we we talked about that earlier in some ways about how the, the nobility, there was an aspect of partiality towards them, and they weren't just noble. They weren't just noble and better than you in their nature. They were also richer than you. I mean, and so there was this. There was it's these. It's all those things piled together that you're just that you're accustomed to. And Scripture warns against that pretty heavily. In, in Proverbs eighteen eleven, it says, "The rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in in his own esteem." I mean, and you. I mean, this is how the rich man thinks of himself. The rich man looks at his wealth as this, and from the outside. When people look at the rich man, they see his wealth as this strong city. It's this glory. It makes him unassailable. It makes him able to be a place of refuge. It makes you know. I mean, it, it makes him this glorious thing, and this right. is just how we view wealth. And if you want to ask why does England still have a monarchy, well, a major part of it is the wealth of the of the of the monarch, because they own a vast amount of very valuable stuff in England, and. You know, unless they I were, heard they own a McDonald's, well, <laughs> but you know, nice even McDonald's. even even more valuable things than a McDonald's. But you know, and so if they're not going to just seize this stuff from you know this family that personally owns vast amounts of stuff, then it would be a huge cost for them to get rid of the king. And I think even where the parliament meets, they own. So I mean, they own like. <laughs> What are you going to go build your own new parliamentary building? <laughs> right. I mean, it, it's like, and so what they do is they sign over rights to it for a monthly or for an annual stipend. But, you know, but yeah, they have real power. So you'd have to actually go and seize everything otherwise. Which England did against most of their nobles, which is kind of interesting that they didn't do it against the the king and queen and their family because all the rest of them, basically, they raised property taxes to impoverish all the other ones so that they all got destroyed. And that's how they destroyed the monarchy in England. No, with the exception nobility, of the, excuse me the nobility in England with the exception of the monarchy. And so one of the things that she gets in exchange for or he now gets in exchange for for uh giving all the the wealth of his property, you know, the out the the income from his property to the government is he doesn't have to pay any taxes. Because that's how they destroyed all the other nobility. Which is a great deal for England. <laughs> right. But I mean, and 
you know, you look at it and just the sense of separation, right? I mean, in the news, it's been saying, you know, did Prince Harry fly on the same jet with Prince William? Well, most of us don't figure out, should we take two private jets or one private jet? And so right. there's just this this separation. They have a high wall around them that everybody wants to peek over and get an idea of what's going on there. because, And it does have a lot to do with their wealth, just the their ability to do things that nobody else could even consider doing. Right. And then – you can see, like I said, I think I'm not sure if we went across all of our episodes. This this might get this might be one of the most commonly read verses that we have, but it's it's, it's pretty commonly referenced. James two two through four, for if for if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I think this is one of the things that it's really easy to go, oh, I would never do this. And it's sort of like idolatry. I mean, you know, oh, I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't practice idolatry at all. I wouldn't have any temptation to. But this is the natural state of man is you see somebody with better clothing and you treat them better. This is, this is what people do. And so the reason why Scripture is warning you there is because the call of Christians is to not behave according to the natural desires of, you know, of a heart, to not behave in a way that is the natural man behaves, but to actually treat people equally, whether they're dressed well or whether they're dressed poorly. America needs to see this because we're, we do this a lot, whether it's Elon Musk or whether it's, you know, you name it, Steve Jobs, all these people that there's this idolatry towards because they're so wealthy. We and should make you list five people and see how many of them are dead. <laughs> Musk is still alive. Musk is alive. Musk is alive. I, just, I was just thinking you got lucky with Musk. No. Bill Gates Tim is alive. Cook, uh, okay, no, I'm just, I'm just Bill Gates. <laughs> I mean, we, we have – we we make up our own kings is what right. you're saying. Yeah. And and we, we are concerned about their succession plans. And when one of them dies or steps down as CEO or president or whatever title they have – who's going to follow on and, and inherit their little kingdom. and Right. And and just when we look at it and we see the rush to watch this stuff about the royalty in England, we should ask ourselves how much of it is just our fascination with people that are rich. Because it's it's dangerous because we're giving a voice to people who probably shouldn't have a voice in a lot of cases. They aren't speaking with wisdom, but they can speak and everybody will listen to them because they're wealthy. I mean, our fascination with people who are rich is – the rich person is supposed to be a picture of God. I mean, the rich person has got the level of resources where there's a sense in which you can watch how they act and you can see, okay, this is, I see a picture of God in that. But the problem comes down to they are just a, a, a man or a woman. And because of that, if you substitute them for God, you're committing idolatry, and it also runs up to the inevitable fact of because they're men or women, they're going to sin. So they're an imperfect picture at best. And it's what we're looking towards them for. If you looked towards a man like Elon Musk and said, hey, here's a man who's very diligent in his work. Here's a man who's trying to educate himself. That's fine. If you go, here's a man that, wow, I just want to hear what he says, and he could talk about any subject and I'll listen to him. Well, no, that's not good because he's just a fool in a lot of things that he says. But because he has money, he's exalted. Versus saying, well, he has money. He must, I mean, unless he stole it, he must have some characteristics that are 
that are causing him to be able to make that money. And those characteristics are what should be emulated, not just go, the man should be emulated. I mean, you could look at him and you could, you could say, okay, he's wealthy and he's using his wealth to take dominion. Right. Not a Christian by any means, but he's doing the sorts of things that somebody with wealth ought to be doing in some sense, as opposed to somebody else who's inherited their wealth or, you know, and just squanders it. Yeah, and in America, we like people who got their wealth by taking dominion, who didn't start out billionaires, but worked and got the money. Right. A lot of times the offspring of the billionaires are the ones that people don't pay any attention to, which is kind of the opposite of England. So we've been kind of talking generally about the monarchy, but we should talk about the queen and, and who she actually was. Because there's a lot of people that are saying what a great Christian she was. And I don't think the testimony out there is very good, but most of the people that I've seen, and I haven't looked that much, but most of the people I've seen, they're usually talking about her Christmas messages, how much they you know, just exalted Christ. So I went back and looked at random Christ- Christmas messages over the last 70 years, and I think 8 out of 10 never mentioned Christ at all. Even when it's a message about Christmas, she didn't mention Christ. One that she mentioned Christ, she also said, but he's no different than Allah, than Buddha, than, you know, whatever religion you have, it's just important that you have faith. And, this is, and this is the head of the English. This <laughs> is the head of the, <laughs> the Church Anglican of England, Church, right? the Anglican Church. But these are the, like this, this quote from Queen Elizabeth is one of her Christmas messages, I believe. And this is the ones people are pointing to to now go, oh, she was such a sound Christian. Throughout my life, the message and teachings of Christ have been my guide and in them I find hope. Is my heartfelt prayer that you will continue to be sustained by your faith in times of trial, encouraged by hope in times of despair. I believe this is shortly after she wrote, it doesn't matter who you have faith in. It's your faith that, you will, that will save you, right. which isn't, it's not the gospel. The, the point isn't here to say that, well, the queen wasn't a Christian. Because, you know, obviously we talked about how they have so much constraint on them on they put so much constraint on themselves to not speak about things so you know it could be she was a strong christian it could be she was a weak christian under bad teaching could be she was not a christian i don't think it could be she was a strong christian well i don't think she could i think that would be a hard one perhaps (laughs) sure but you know but i saw today in an article talking about she was such a great christian you know because of these christmas messages there could there's probably countless englishmen who were saved through her messages like that's just not true that's not true this isn't a strong i mean this is a message that anybody that's nominally christian could say joe biden has said things as strong as this at points Easily. in his life i mean right. probably, stronger probably things stronger yeah right nancy right. pelosi right has definitely said things stronger than this i i mean i want to want to push back on that a little bit because i could see i could well i could see the the attraction and the sympathy that an american might have to seeing quotes like this pop up through their Facebook feed in that we we have such an aggressively secular public square where any time a politician mentions their faith, they always walk it back and say, oh, but, you know, I, my my personal religious beliefs can't or don't influence my political. So, so when you see somebody say something like this, you think, oh, my goodness, here's actually a, a – a, public figure who's willing to acknowledge Christ. Now, I, I'm, I'd like to destroy that sympathy as well, because it's, it's, it's I mean, you, it's no different than when we look at and say, 
find look at this celebrity look at this famous sports person this famous singer what's his name kanye Kanye. who's who's come to christ everybody was sure kanye was a christian i remember when they were sure britney spears is a christian you know or justin bieber or you know everybody has this moment where it's like let me try this thing out because it'll get me a new audience and and the christians all fall for it every single time or even just they're having a bad time in their life Right. Yeah, you know I mean, and and we would, you know, and we we're so hungry to see somebody out there publicly acknowledging Christ, partly because we've been told you're not supposed to do that, and partly because we're not willing to do it. So all of a sudden, somebody does a Christmas message, right? Because she, the all the the broadcasters in England make it so that every this is all you can see, right? Is her giving this Christmas message, and so it's tradition. It's been going on. You know, before there was television, it was on radio. I mean, this just has been going on for a very long time. And so, but it's a Christmas message. And so the fact that you mentioned Christ during a Christmas message, I'm sorry, this this shouldn't surprise us. We should expect that. And, you know, you go back and, you know, you look, any any monarch before 1900, you know, Catholic, Protestant, you know, they're going to have so much religious language in what they're saying. You know, you look at Hitler. I think he had some pretty strong quote-unquote Christian quotes. Now, I'm not comparing the Queen to Hitler, despite that I just did that, (laughs) but I'm not comparing the Queen to Hitler. But, you know, we just have a very low standard of what we'll say. This is a Christian hero. Look, they they said the word Jesus. They're a Christian hero. No. And people did it with Donald Trump, right? I mean, Donald Trump, he started like, he's like trying to remember his favorite book of the Bible, (laughs) you know. Well, he's pro-sodomy. He's pro all kinds of things. And then they go, oh, he's a good, strong Christian, even though he's been married three times. I mean, it's like, no, this, people are so desperate to say this is what Christianity is, and that's an incredibly dangerous thing to do because it just destroys the gospel. Our neighbor has had a sign up in her yard for for years saying, Jesus is my Savior and Trump is my president. And it's just, you know, we're so desperate to have somebody in in the public sphere and in the political sphere who's willing to acknowledge Christ that somebody will drop these little crumbs and will hang on them and will make more of them than we ought to, instead of saying, what does the Bible say for judging somebody's character, judging their professions of faith? You know, we, we, we give them a pass. Right. And, and, and someone who is the head of the Church of England, who's the protector of the Reformed religion in Scotland, and these are the quotes that you're having. When those churches are running into serious error, and this is what the head of the church, the defender of the faith, is saying. It, it's not. It's not what you would look for. I mean, we we don't think the churches should have heads on earth, but that's not. If you have one, they should be better than that. And, and let's bring this back to the church. This is. I mean, what has been the standard of whether someone's saved in the church for the past sixty years? What would they make a profession? We have said that a profession of faith is salvation. And so, I mean, so there's this part of it where the church set the standard. It's really hard to be mad at Christians in the pews who go, well, somebody made a profession. You know what I mean? This is what the Her church profession's been... better than mine. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And so you just, I mean, so, you know, but, uh, but that's not a good basis. I mean, another thing here that is important to remember is that she started ruling in 52. Right. It's a long time ago. I'll tell you what, Eisenhower, who's known adulterer, right? I mean, Eisenhower... Yeah, no testimony of being a Christian. Some of us weren't alive during the Eisenhower administration. Tell us about right. Eisenhower. I, I, I've just read books, believe it or not. <laughs> I thought you but, went to grade school with him. But you look at Eisenhower, 
And Eisenhower said that the Cold War was about atheism versus Christianity. And he put, you know, under God into the Pledge of Allegiance. Because he for said, political reasons. <laughs> for political reasons, but also because that was how you had to speak. Right. And that's the time frame she's coming from. It's not like she stepped into the stage now. People remember, she remembers what her father said. I'm sure her father was a lot more, more professing of Christianity than she was because it died out in the 60s. And so a lot of these things, we look at it and we forget, if you've been ruling for 70 years and you're acting like you were 70 years ago, this isn't much of a profession of faith. Right. And so, right, I mean, and like I said, I think it's, there's just this aspect of because someone's, I mean, the Bible actually has verses that say, just because someone said, Lord, Lord, that isn't your standard. And I think just as Christians, we need to we need to move away from that being our standard from going Oh, that's the be all end all of whether someone's a Christian or not. It's it's it is a it's relevant, but it's pretty minor. Well, God says they honor me with their lips, but their hearts far from me. Right. I think you look at Queen Elizabeth and what some of the things that she did. She was aware that Charles was having an affair with Camilla before she had him marry Diana. I mean, right. all this stuff. It's not like any of this was secret. They all knew that he would commit to continue to commit adultery, but yet he has to marry this this 19-year-old or 20-year-old or whatever she was. I mean, that's not a very nice person. Let's just put it that way. That's not a very nice person. She covers up and pays an estimated $15 million to cover up Prince Andrew and his pedophilia. That's not this. If, if somebody in your church was paying $15 million so that their son wouldn't go to prison for pedophilia, I don't think you'd go, well, you're such a strong Christian. I mean, this isn't the sign of being a Christian. And I'm not saying that we know that she's not a Christian, because like you said, Joshua, a lot of what she's done is hidden, but we shouldn't exalt her and say she's a strong Christian. It might be that she's saved, but even then, there's a lot of her behavior that it's like, really? Would you accept this in your church? And the warnings in James say a lot of people would be really in danger because they would, if, if the queen came to their church, they would be, I mean— you would be in danger of showing her great partiality. <laughs> the other things that she should be judged for is, or that she we should consider how she did was how, I mean, she is the head of the Anglican Church. And she is, I mean, she's, when Henry VIII made the king the head of the Anglican Church, he basically, the king was the pope. And so in a real sense, she's sitting there as pope. Now her power as the Pope of the English Church, of the Anglican Church, it's been constrained in much the same way that her power as the monarch is. But still, nominally, she's the head of the church. Still, nominally, she she has to sign off on every archbishop. That the power, I mean, my understanding is that she and the prime minister sign off on the, I mean, it is, she has. There's a synod that mostly makes the decisions. Okay. And the other thing is her power is also nominally constrained because when you have an unwritten constitution, it didn't used to be that way. Who's to say that you can't go back to how it was before? Right. So, I mean, there were laws passed, but it doesn't mean that you right. can't just go, I'm going to ignore the law because right, it was, by my right as a monarch, I'm just going to say this law is abrogated. Right. Or that, that, that law violates my constitutional prerogative. Right. And so just as we think about it, I mean, she stepped in the Anglican Church. There, there was some Reformation that happened during the Reformation in the Anglican Church. But the Anglican Church is, you know, a lot of it's pretty bad. There's some that's okay, but it certainly embraced sodomy while she was the head of it. 
it's I mean it's it's moved far away from the gospel while she was the head of it. And you also even if you're not gonna overthrow the structure of British government, you know, you could have Paul Washer come and preach at to a lot of people if you're the Queen of England. I mean you could do a lot of things to you have should a big ha- could have him give the Christmas message exactly. rather than exactly. you giving it. <laughs> exactly. But you know, you know, you have a lot of influence that doesn't involve upending everything that you can use in, you know, somewhat subtle ways that could make a big splash depending on how you did it. And the other thing that seems to be out there is people say, but she swore to uphold the Church of Scotland. So I thought it was worth reading the oath that Charles III just took. I, Charles III, by the grace of God of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and the Northern Ireland and of my other realms and territories, King Defender of the Faith, which was given by a pope, right? He was Defender of the Roman Catholic Faith, just to make sure that we understand what this means. Do faithfully promise and swear that I shall inviolably maintain and preserve the settlement of the true Protestant religion as established by the laws made in Scotland in prosecution of the claim of right and particularly by an act in Tutelid, an act for securing the Protestant religion and Presbyterian church government and by the acts passed in the parliament of both kingdoms for union of the two kingdoms together with government, worship, discipline, rights and privileges of the Church of Scotland. So help me God. And they're looking and saying, well, she covenanted to uphold the Scottish Presbyterian Church. That makes her a Presbyterian, right? That makes her a Presbyterian. <laughs> what, how is she a Presbyterian when she's the head of the church? But right. anyway, I don't, I, don't, I don't quite get that. But I'm sorry, taking that oath, I, Charles II took that oath, or a similar oath. I think his was probably more blunt. Well, he, he saw and signed under the Psalm leading covenant, which is right, far stronger. Right, which is far stronger. And so... And he wasn't a Christian. Taking an oath that you're not going to obey, taking an oath that you don't really do anything for, that, I mean, the, the Church of Scotland has drifted very far from the gospel in the 70 years that she was preserving The defender it, of its faith. The defender of the Roman Catholic <laughs> faith. Um, and so just to look at what she swore to do, and I, don't, I couldn't find her the exact oath that she took, but I assume it's pretty similar to the oath that he took. And so, I mean— to look at that and go, this proves that she's an evangelical Christian. You know, people are saying, well, she's not Reformed. But, well, the Church of Scotland, if you go back, you know, 70 years ago, I think their documents were still pretty Reformed. And so it just doesn't make – I mean, she she hasn't been a good leader of the church. Let's put it that way. Right. I mean, a part of it is – I mean, so, you know, there are several different forums that I'm active on and, like, you know, different Reformed forums on and Facebook – and I saw several posts that were so, – some of them were by people who were from – who grew up in the United Kingdom or grew up in – not sure where in the United Kingdom that they grew up, but – or in the or in Great you – know, in Britain. But they they were saying basically, my queen my queen died. I'm, I'm going to miss her. I'm going to miss her care. She was like a mother. She was a Christian. She encouraged me to lean on Christ. And there were these – and then under it, the comments were just very much people asking, oh, was she a Christian? I didn't know she was a Christian. Yes, she must have been a Christian. And a lot of these things, I mean, the reason that – part of the reason why I wanted to do this episode is there are people who are just – their message – we talked about the positive things that a, that a monarch can bring, like in the sense of they, they do bring order. They do bring a unifying sense of things. The fact that she stood there and said anything positive about Christ, that's not bad. Right. It's not a bad thing that she said that, but don't misattribute the positive things about a, a queen and then say that that she was those things. In the end, it's the goodness of God that he. It's just like when Donald Trump comes out and says 
and tries to make, pay lip service to Christianity, the church shouldn't run after him and chase him. You should be glad that Christianity has enough influence that causes him to have to even pay lip service to Christianity, and you should expect you should wish and pray that he had a greater constraint on him, that he had to actually act in a way that Christians would expect him to. And so there is just this part of it where this is the lure of idolatry. This is the lure of these things. Is They cause us to say, I'm going to give more glory to this person than they deserve. I'm going to give more honor to them than they deserve. And I'm going to effectively steal honor from God. And as, you know, the other way that that people should think about her justly. I'm not saying that you beat her up, but you think about her justly as how good of a monarch she was. And people forget that, you know, we read Daniel 2. Daniel 2, a kingdom's supposed to expand, and that's supposed to be the picture. That's when you talk about how great Nebuchadnezzar was, how great, you know, Alexander the Great was, Darius, all these people that in the Bible they're held up as these great kings, David, Solomon, well, less so Solomon, but that they're these great kings. Part of being a great king is that you actually conquer a kingdom because that's a picture of the gospel, right? I mean, it's the type. And she kind of did the opposite. And her father started it. Her father had already lost, you know, Sri Lanka, uh, a few other nations that had left his being king. And so it had already been started. But when she came in, she lost most of the empire, and, and it wasn't lost in a way that was like, you know, oh, it doesn't matter that it was lost. She lost Israel, for instance, Palestine. When she lost Palestine, it created wars for 60 years. When she lost Nigeria, there was the Biafra War that killed 15 million people because she just went, well, they, I'm not their king anymore, not their queen anymore. When you look at Sudan, Sudan to this day has huge violence in it. That all starts after the queen stops being queen. When they took the order away from that country, because they went, basically England went, we're too lazy to do this anymore. Because they chose to get rid of them. There wasn't so much. But in so many countries, there was so much violence and so much destruction that happened because she said, I'm going to stop being their queen. And so we can't look at her and go, oh, what a great ruler, without remembering the millions of people that died because of the choices that she made. And I'm not blaming her like a Hitler, right? I'm just saying, and she is basically submitting to the, to the, to the British people. But at the same time, this isn't how you judge to say somebody's a good monarch. It's analogous and, to America's invasion and withdrawal of Afghanistan. Yes. And, you know— you know, you you probably I would imagine I have haven't seen an actual poll of this, but you go and ask, you know, the average person, average Englishman, average, you know, American, you know, what are the greatest kings and queens of England? And I have to imagine that Queen Elizabeth II would be on their list. You know, for Americans, we probably don't know any more than that. I mean, there must have been Elizabeth <laughs> I since there's an Elizabeth II. But other, you know, but I, you know, I think she's high, very well regarded. But you know, history is not going to look at her and say, "What a great queen." one of the greatest Queen England's had. I mean, her greatest accomplishment is the fact that she made it to the end of her life and still was queen. And, you know, in an era where many monarchies have been abolished, the English monarchy has not been abolished. But that, you know, if you're looking to get in the book of great kings and queens of England, remaining queen is not high on the list. You've, you've lo finished losing the empire. And, I mean, it was an uphill battle to not do that. That was the direction England was going. But if you don't, if the monarch is not leading... 
then they're not a great monarch. You know, the, a monarch, the, the good thing about a monarch is that they can lead in a direction that the nation wouldn't have gone without them. And the fact that she let the empire be lost, you know, that, that she, her, her duty, if, it, if that was a bad thing, was to stop it. I mean, you say that history's not going to look favorably on her. It's going to depend on the historians because right now it's fashionable not to like colonialism. Right. I'm saying in, you know, I, in the I, I grand will, scale of things, not, yeah, not so, in our lifetime. So if, if you think that the breakdown of empire is a really great thing, well, then, I mean, she might be the greatest British monarch of all time. Right. Well, I think what will happen, though, at some point in time is the eschatology of the church will change and then she'll be judged a bad monarch. Because the reality is she's being judged as a monarch and says she's a great monarch because most people think this is how Christ reigns. He loses everything. Everything gets worse and worse. He can't control everything. He just loses everything. And so they're looking at her as a type of Christ going, wow, she's really good because they misunderstand who Christ is. Instead of Christ who says at the end of Matthew, right before the Great Commission, the part everybody knows, he leads up to with all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You can, when, when that's true, you can say whatever you want after that. And, and the increase of his government, there is no end. And it's the kingdom, the, the rock that's cut without hands that will destroy all the kingdoms of the earth. And He's fill the earth. Rule it, and it's going to fill the, it's going to grow and fill the earth. I mean, the picture is not of a king that fails to conquer. But yet we're exalting her because the church has decided that Jesus Christ is a king that can't conquer. The eschatology of the church at some point will switch, and the church will go. The diminishing of the Roman of the empire of, of her king, of the monarchy is a picture of the coming of Jesus Christ and the crushing. You know, what I mean, is the church will look at it and go, she wasn't. You know, her her power was being taken away from her by the nature of Christ's reigning. But, but recognize, this probably also is from God because right. if she were the opposite. If she were that really great picture that we're talking about, she would be that much more attractive as an idol. Yes. And she would be ruling over Nigeria. She would be ruling over Sudan. She would be ruling over over India. She would be ruling over many places where the gospel has gone, where if she was a strong ruler but as lousy of a head of a church as she was— that she would have constrained the gospel in a lot of places, that the gospel expanded unbelievably during her reign. During her reign, there's no 110 million people in Nigeria that claim, I'm not saying they are, but claim to be Christians. Well, that's a huge expanse, that if she had the strong will and the ruler that she had before, it wouldn't have happened. It's important for us to remember what God says about a woman being, being your ruler. Isaiah 3, 12 through 14, As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O oh, my people, those who lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. The Lord stands up to plead and stands to judge the people. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders of his people and his princes, for you have eaten up the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. And, you know, we were talking about how it is a blessing from God that she was not a good, you know, emperor based on the biblical standards of, of what a king's supposed to do. But the reality is the British Empire definitely had the plunder of the poor in their houses. Absolutely. And they stopped the gospel from going forth. I mean, at first they did, but let it go forth. But as it went on and their, their colonialism, there wasn't a whole lot of evangelism mixed in with their colonialism. And so God was judging them. And God judged England by putting Elizabeth as queen. You know, women rule over them. 
oh, my people, those who lead you, cause you to err. And so we should recognize that we shouldn't go, oh, what a great queen she was. We should go, this is the judgment of God that she was queen. You know, as I think back to how we spoke during this episode, I hope that we came across not to say that she was some wicked, evil person, because she was probably a kind woman that had decorum, had standards, had you know many positive things. But at the same time, we should judge her and, and consider her ways according to Scripture and not according to the desire of our hearts. The desire of man's heart is to exalt man. What we're supposed to be doing is exalting God in all things. God was very kind to the world to cause the British Empire to go away under the reign of Queen Elizabeth. That was a blessing. And as we turn and all these people are lifting her up and saying how great she was, let's just remember it is God that's great. Holiness, righteousness, truth, these are the things that we're supposed to seek for. And unfortunately, she didn't advance those. She advanced abortion. She advanced sodomy. She advanced many things during her reign. But truth wasn't one of them. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching. Thanks for watching.